You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Ham Project. Panel 1 focused on creative praxis and featured poet Ian Davidson, who presented on From a Council House in Connacht, a creative and critical reading, and artist Amy Cutler, who presented on A Video Book of Orchids. Panel 1 was preceded by some opening remarks from symposium organisers Sarah Komen and Megan Custer. Hey, hello and welcome everyone. And on behalf of my co-organiser Sarah Komen um, and the director of the UCD Environmental Humanities Research Strand, Sheree Deckard, and all the other members of UCD's Environmental Humanities Strand, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to everyone on this first day of our Empire and Ecologies Symposium. We're so delighted with the interest this theme has generated and we're looking forward to a stimulating couple of days spent in your company online. Thank you, Megan, and a warm welcome to everyone. I am currently in Australia and on Indigenous land, um, so I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands I'm currently Zooming from and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. As this is the inaugural symposium of the Environmental Humanities Research Strand, I would like to take a brief moment to introduce you to the goals of our interdisciplinary community, which aims to bring humanistic modes of inquiry and creative praxis to bear on environmental challenges, with an emphasis on the capacity of cultural critique to illuminate ethical and political questions relating to ecological crises. In particular, the environmental humanities aims to resist polarized understandings of nature and culture and to bridge disciplinary divides between the two cultures of the sciences and the humanities, exploring how environment making is always entangled in social questions. In addressing these aims of the strand, Empire and Ecologies, and I'm going to give the full title now, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century, takes a humanity-centred and multidisciplinary approach to methodological issues and case studies that examine the construction of nature by various forms of imperial power across a range of periods and locations. And the topics of our panels over the next couple of days give you a sense of this wonderful range creative praxis, disaster and environmental crises, ancient nature and modern imagination, biodiversity and indigenous knowledges, blue humanities and methodologies of extractivism. We would like to give our sincere thanks to all the members of the Environmental Humanities Strand who have convened these panels. A truly wonderful reflection, we think, of the interdisciplinary community the Strand has already built in a year of global pandemic pressures. Thank you, Sarah. So this event has received funding and support from University College Dublin's College of Arts and Humanities Institute seed funding scheme, as well as the European Research Council funded South Hem project. 
Our first panel is scheduled to begin at 1 p.m. This panel is going to consider creative praxis through two different art forms, poetry and film. We're thrilled the panel is going to include the presentation of Dr. Amy Cutler's new film on plant life and the politics of remediatization in lockdown, um, which has been commissioned especially for this symposium, as well as poetry by Professor Ian Davidson. I'll be both convening this panel and contributing to it and beginning with a short talk of about 15 minutes on a recent publication of mine, the publication called From a Council House in Connacht. There should be a link somewhere in the chat from which you could, if you wish, purchase this uh, publication. I have to say that for my publisher. After that, I will then be introducing Amy Cutler, who would, will be talking about and showing a film especially commissioned for the symposium, and we're very excited about that, but more of that later. So I'm delighted to contribute to the symposium from a creative perspective. Poetry, the art form I work in, is a way of thinking about the important issues this conference raises. It is a way of bringing together different types of knowledge to help us to think through the ways that imperialism and colonialism affect the direct experience of our environments and ecologies. Poetry is also importantly an aestheticized verbal construct and its form also tells us something of what it wants to say. This little book, pamphlet really, that I'm going to talk about, was written after I moved to Ireland from Wales and during my first year in Connacht. I thought I knew a lot about Ireland, but it turned out I knew very little. It was written sitting in the council house of the title, recuperating from major and completely unexpected surgery a house I'd just moved into and that leaked wind and rain in equal proportions, staring out at a landscape I expected to understand but didn't. It is written in combinations of prose and poetry, a nod to the Japanese form of haibun perhaps, but also a form chosen that could accommodate the varieties of information I wanted to, to include. It has been variously described as an essay, a memoir and a poem sequence. There are 17 sections. I'm now going to read number one. I sit in a council house in Connacht, staring out at the meal re. The green of the Atlantic can just be glimpsed through the neighbour's sheds and a barn on a hill with a rounded iron roof. From the back of the land that surrounds a house, the sky opens to include a broad expanse of sea between Inish Turk and Inish Clare. The light is astonishing. The light fills you up, eradicating dark corners. It illuminates and there is no answer to it. The eye of the sun. When cloud found its way round a mountain or water thunders underfoot through tunnels of peat, or the eye of the sun is on you. A distant island is a volcano for the time the sun shuts its eyes. Lids close slowly, lashes brush hillsides, feather weight sun beams, accumulations of cloud. I knew if I was to understand more about the environment in which I found myself, I would have to know more about the house. There was information from many sources. A friend from the next village laughed and told me I'd bought a house for poor people. My neighbour next door said they were built by the council and you could end up living next door to just anyone, that is, outside the patterns of family ownership. A visiting surveyor described it as a land commission house. 
everyone was vague about a date of building. Mario McGarry's authoritative book on the Irish cottage didn't mention it at all. The house called Fenon is a land commission house or a council house and a labourer's cottage. It was a starting point for those still with nothing, even after the great estates had been divided up. Built in the 1930s or 40s probably, a cottage and an acre and a small square house of about 45 metres of the simplest form of construction with four mass concrete walls capped off at the wall plate, no gables and a massive central chimney cast on sight. It had one door. And now the poetry at the bottom, breathing through a layer of kelp like pale memories of faces facing the sky then turning to earth. The poetry section of Figures Beneath the Earth begins to forecast future parts of the poem sequence, where I go back in time to understand what is there. If I didn't understand the history of the house, I knew less about the village. I called Lewisburg or Cluan to give its Irish name the village. It is a place of a few hundred people. I was corrected, that is town. The village is as follows. The Irish name of Finon is Finun. There are no village signs as you enter. No road signs point to it. There seems no correct name. Sometimes it's written as Finun Finon. There is an air code, but it sends people to next door. We know the houses the, in the village by the names of the people who live there, their family names. And now to the poetry at the bottom. What news from Fenon, they asked at the feed store. No news, I replied, and he shook his head, turning to the next customer. Now I carry small items of news about my person like currency to be divided up and distributed. They buy me time. I want to go back and just highlight one section of poem eight. Fenon is a townland of 899 acres. There are boundaries on a map, but not on the land. In 1841, it had 48 houses with a population of 290. By 1911, it had 20 houses with a population of 111. By 2011, it had a population of 61 across 21 households. The population change is crucial. Mayo is almost unique in Europe in having a population of about a third of what it was in 1841. I began to change the way I looked at the landscape, trying to see it for what it was rather than trying to shape it into something it wasn't. I realized for all my liberal, radical or anti-imperial thinking, I was still bringing a particular mindset to it, a particularly British timeline with things like, however much I try to critique them, the Industrial Revolution, Victoriana, the World Wars, etc., etc. And in agrarian terms, the history of the mechanization of agriculture. The tractor, for example, generally introduced post-war in Britain, but wasn't in general use until the 1980s, anecdotally, in this part of, of Ireland. The development of the monoculture of crops and stock, etc. I was also bringing to it a particular intellectual context. My own academic work from the late 1990s onwards has been on relationships between space, spatial theory, and forms of poetry before shifting to examine the mobility of people and things a few years ago. So I had a kind of academic framework and set of theor theoretical concepts I was trained to apply as well. 
That in some ways was helpful in identifying broad or general trends between, for example, mobility and change, but all too often distracted me from the ambivalent and contradictory evidence before me, evidence I wanted to include. I knew Irish history was different, of course, and celebrated that difference, but my practice of reading the landscape took some time to catch up, and I didn't as yet have an alternative timeline, however crude and imperfect these things are. Nine. Houses seem randomly scattered at first, making it difficult to trace history through a succession of building types. I can see it now. The landscape has taken shape before my eyes. All my eyes have changed to accommodate the perspective of the landscape. It observes me as much as I observe it. We both shift. The roads that were built and the houses, the bogland divided up and the boreens that run through it, Turbury right somewhere up or down the road. The multiple ownership of commonage, open grazing high in the mountains, a network of ownership that doesn't always follow logical patterns or roadways, but the branches of families. A pattern that requires sheep to be moved in a variety of trailers. The drivers wave as they pass. The product of many hands, working over time with kelp and turf. Nurtured fields like good children. I felt really stupid for not completely understanding in the first place that two very important events had shaped the environment and landscape in which I now found myself. The first is what the British call the famine of the 19th century, but is better called the Great Hunger or Angota Moor. And the second is the process of land ownership that followed revolution and independence. The term famine suggests a kind of natural disaster rather than the imperial act of genocide that it was even if by neglect as well as purpose. And I'm not talking about the notion of the great hunger in general or national terms. That has been done by better historians than me. But the effect on the immediate landscape I could see from my window, it was within a few minutes from my house. For my neighbours, the pain is still very real, unlike the bodies just beneath the surface. The famine graveyard built in the sand dunes just down the coast is slowly eroded and skeletons revealed. The great hunger was an act of genocide so dreadful it defies description, and is certainly not mine to appropriate for my poetry. 13. Land, water, and the vertical and horizontal borders between them. Liminal that you can dip a toe into or go knee deep, breaking through a surface of turf. Deep black ditches where peat water flows. In Mayo, the water might be under the land, a bog that ripples. And now to the poetry at the bottom. When landlords walked the earth, improving the land was a mugs game, as the widow said to Asenath Nicholson in 1845. If I make my acre tidy, the agent puts a pound on the rent or turns me out. So the land lay unnurtured, fit only for potatoes, the landlord's friend, that kept the earth turned and the peasants strong enough to work, but without the energy to bring revolution. The peasants sustained in the landlord's eyes as the lazy peasant, apparently too feckless to care for their land.
15. And I look again at the shape of the landscape and the human tracks and traces and what might have made it turn out that way. Little remained standing at the dwellings of Mayo's population of nearly 390,000 in 1841, reduced to just over 130,000 in 2016. Those 260,000 people who have disappeared had a light footprint. There are some ruined stone cottages scattered around the countryside, but not many. The poor in the 19th century often lived in turf houses, cabins that have returned to the land. It is a history that lies buried, only coming to the surface in the lines of ridges dug to try to grow potatoes ever higher up the hills to avoid the blight. It is a history that lies buried when the turf houses were collapsed on a dead family and the bodies that were simply put in the ground where they dropped in individual or shared graves. So they lie there. And the reason I couldn't read the landscape in terms of land ownership was because of the ways land was distributed by the congested districts board set up in the late 19th century by the then British government to try to head off unrest and provide some relief to the poorest parts of mainly the West Coast. Post-independence, their work was taken over by the Land Commission. The records of the Land Commission in Ireland, as many as you will know, are still not publicly available for research. But after the revolution, the state provided loans for people to buy the land they worked on. It was not an uncontested process or perfect, but it was a kind of agrarian revolution, a taking back of land from the big landlords. It is this process of distribution that has produced the patterns of land ownership and the routes between them, as well as turbary rights, the right to dig turf or peat for fuel, that produces the patterns of the bog. What I've tried to do is outline the ways that different kinds and ranges of knowledge can be used to build what might be called a creative work. The pamphlet is, quite explicitly, a way of thinking about the landscape I found myself in, a record of the research I carried out. There are things I've not talked about, such as emigration and the Irish language, both crucial aspects in considering the effects of imperialism and colonialism. So it might be inclusive, but it's not complete. If there is scholarly expertise displayed in the pamphlet, it is in the use of poetic form and the connections and disjunctions between poetry and prose, the use of the poetic line. My knowledge of Irish history, of land reform, of landscape and the environment might come from scholarly sources, from PhD theses, academic journal articles, etc., but is also gleaned from conversations with neighbours, from websites, Wikipedia type of knowledge, popular publications, and most importantly, the process of observation. So the pamphlet is made up of information from a wide variety of sources, almost too wide to unpick. It feels as I speak of it, that each section becomes something that could be expanded to make another book. So what is the contribution of this poetic work to the symposium? How does it take forward our understanding of relationships between empire, empire, ecology, environment? I would want to say deliberately and confidently, without making greater claims than this small pamphlet can withstand, that it provides an experiential account of living in one small patch of Ireland, a kind of ethnography of land and environment and a discursive interaction with it. It does draw extensively on more generalized research to develop its context and adds one very specific case study. Through an aesthetics of coincidence, 
and contiguity of things happening at the same time that are proximate, it can help us to think through the issues this, sympo this symposium raises at the forthcoming panels. So that's the end of my contribution. And I will now go back to being a convener and chair of the panel, and I will introduce uh, Dr. Amy Cutler and, uh, and, and the premiere of the film Amy has made for this symposium. So Amy, I'll say, I'll say a few words about Amy and then, and then hand over to her. So Amy Cutler is an artist, a cultural geographer, a writer and a filmmaker and musician who works with ideas of geography and non-human others. She's completed a PhD uh, that I was fortunate enough to read, has also been a postdoctorate scholar and has held an ECR fellowship. And she's exhibited her work at many live events. And I, I looked up her website to see this and was impressed by the range of BBC, Somerset House, Wellcome Trust, Lake Junction, Tate Modern, San Francisco Green Film Festival, Natural History Museum, and Kew Museum of Economic Botany. She's trained as a geographer, a training that, that does affect her work as an artist, performer, and curator, works frequently in the production of immersive and live cinema. I've heard work by her with sound, sound work of soundscapes and a visual work, which is, which is true, uh, truly fascinating. So now I'm going to be quiet and hand over to uh, Amy Cutler. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and thank you, Megan and Sarah and Ian. Thank you so much for the support. And hi, everyone. I'm really excited about the conference as a whole. Um, I'm going to explain what I'm going to do over the next bit of time, which is I'm not going to show the entire film in linear fashion because it's quite long and I'd like to also talk to some of the ideas and connect it up to some of our discussions here. So I'm going to be jumping between different sections of the film and tying it to some of what Ian has been saying um, and then we'll open it up to questions. So um, I'll be presenting for about 20 minutes, about 10 minutes of it will be me talking, but it will be split up with extracts from the film. And then the, the whole film, obviously we can all watch it in best quality afterwards um, and it will be shared and disseminated afterwards. So this is more kind of pointing us around the film behind the scenes. Um, I think it will fit really well with uh, a lot of what Ian was just discussing, particularly around these ideas of the architectonics of the text. Um, the media of writing, these some of what Ian was saying about expandable sections. I think that's that's really interesting about those architectures of storytelling when you bring that idea of connections and disjunctions into another form of media, in this case, moving image media, and how that can also play with these ideas of ambivalence and contradictory forms of, of reading the landscape and also be equally archivally discursive in, in a similar way to Ian's writing. Um, and the sense that he gave of the pamphlet as a way of thinking about the landscape I found myself in, which was quite Dante-esque, that phrasing, thinking about the landscape I found myself in, that kind of passivity of finding yourself in a landscape. Um, and I think that idea of in media res is quite interesting to me, particularly when I'm thinking about media and moving image and how this can speak to the condition of ecological, of our ecological relations with legacies of empire but also modern power infrastructures of empire. Um, so since this conference aims to facilitate conversations which are across trans-historical, trans-imperial and trans-regional contexts, for that reason, um, while the topic of my film is in theory orchids, it is trying to speak in these ways that are less of an object history and it is trans-historical, trans-cultural, trans-regional. 
um, so similar to kind of the ethos of this conference in moving from the 17th century imperialist model through to 19th century forms of new imperialism to 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and I think part of that in my approach was approaching this as a film that I was making entirely digi digitally during lockdown. Um, so thinking about kind of digital imperialism. Um, so for this reason, I took on this idea of remediation as a kind of key idea in the film, asking how are environments shaped by empires, how are empires shaped by environments, but also how does that include the environment of the book and how does remediatizing a book digitally or in video art um, also add to these questions. Um, so this is this video, it's a video book, I would say. Um, and I think as part of that, it's tries to draw on questions of digital remediation and ecology, which I think that moving image work essentially always poses. Um, and particularly influenced here by UC Parika's writing in A Geology of Media um, about what other modes of media materialism deserve our attention, um, i.e. a different sort of temporal and spatial materialism of media culture than the one that focuses solely on media meaning machines or even networks or technologies of of non-human agencies. So um, this is also to do with the wider understanding of geography as a discipline, geography, mediation of the earth. Um, so it's also signal coming from this signaled shift from James Hutton's theory of the earth, 1788, to media of the earth, including new visualization techniques, new forms of mining, new affordances of geophysical realities and how that becomes turned into resources, but also media objects. So these are all passages of different ways of mobilizing the earth into and as media, um, which really brings to mind, I think, um, a recent piece by Sheila Sheik and Roz Gray called The Wretched Earth, um, which of course is a play on Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, but they say the wretched earth, this is not a metaphor, the earth itself is the wretched. Um, and this is a quote from their article. They state, yet more than simply an offense against the earth, the conflicts, the botanical conflicts signaled by our title, the wretched earth, are often enacted through the earth or natural environment. Landscapes and vegetation are not simply the backdrop against which violence and dispossession unfold, but are mobilized as the very medium of violence whether this be through the scorched earth tactics or through the role of planting and environmental remodeling, including the enclosure of territory in the name of environmental conservation in land grabbing and dispossession. So this is not offenses against the earth, offenses through the earth. Um, and I think that's kind of what I want to draw on sometimes when I think about this idea of, you know, the, the condition of mediation and how we might work with that in moving image, how moving image practices might explore and intervene in the cultures, politics and systems of botanical representation, as well as their attendant desires and violences generated through human interaction with ecology. Um, so I'm going to play a few different sections of the film. Um, I want to explain the key metaphor, which is the paper herbarium or book of flowers. In this case, orchids. I took orchid as my key theme. Um, when I began to make this film, I was thinking out the fact that usually, annually, um, it would now be happening that there would be international uh, orchid festivals taking place in curated spaces such as Kew. 
and these are no longer happening. So this is the first year that there aren't these, oh, the Thai themed orchid festival, or you know, these international festivals, which were themselves very much marketed as these kind of ex exploratory of colonial landscapes. Um, so these use of, of what has what has sometimes been called by lands by plant curators and um, passport plants, which means they're kind of curating plants in such a way that when you walk through them, it feels like you're going on a tour of a country or of the world. So those are, that's the kind of planting curatorial style called passport plants. So it became really interesting to me, the kind of ironies of the fact that this was not happening at the same time that we're all stuck here in lockdown. Um, and at the same time as this happening, I was taking part in and interested in a lot of these kind of movement of research events about plants and plant liveness into online venues, um, which then brings out all these different questions of liveness, of, of conditions of liveness, of um, both theories of life and vitalism, but also the kind of threat to liveness posed by the electric age, the threat to liveness posed right now, the idea that as socially and historically produced, the categories of the live and the recorded are defined in mutually exclusive relationships. So, you know, the notion of the live is premised on the absence of recording. That's not, in fact, hard and fast. So the idea of the live and the recorded are very different concepts, um, but they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and therefore, I began to attend more and more live plant events online. I don't know if anybody else here went to the, the live webcam moonflowering in Cambridge Botanic Gardens, but this became a key case in point for me. Is this um, travelled um, online event in which the plant no longer had its normal publics, but it had a much greater public when it was flowering online. So one argument for liveness is that an essential element for a successful live ritual is just a mutual focus of attention. So this idea of new rituals of live traveling via plants became very interesting to me. Um, I'm just going to show, uh, before I show this first clip, I'm just also just going to share uh, an image. So if you can see here, this is some of the kind of ways that I would start looking at source material and start thinking out what is a specimen book compared to a video book. And the name, uh, the name of the film is A Video Book of Orchids. Um, and it was taken from an existing film from the 1980s called A Video Book of Roses, um, which is actually just a very normal documentary. But I became really intrigued in this title. What is a video book? You know, how does that relate to herbarium? And how can it play with the politics of the herbarium? So what is it like to have this one plant at its center, how do these type of publications, or you know, how, how does the hegemony of the book as it is created navigate these questions, these people, these plants, and what is the relationship between the video, the book, and the orchid? And this is just an image also to give a sense of some of the live events that started flourishing during lockdown. This was one called All Flesh is Grass, but at a certain point in the film, I'm sampling tiny bits of conversation which are from behind the scenes of Zooms at ecological events, such as this. Um, but I've particularly focused on ones where bringing together in one sentence, you can hear somebody saying something like, oh, if you look at the a pendulum of this plant, just follow my cursor, you know, or something like that, where in one sentence, you can tell that there is this mediated online environment. Um, okay, so that's enough of an introduction of the first clip. Um, here we go. Okay, so that's uh, the first section. Um, 
The film as a whole is arranged, maybe in a way that also speaks to Ian's work, to kind of think through also this, the kind of hegemony of the book and the printed structure of the book, um, arranging the film itself into uh, errata, flypaper, end matter, end matter index. And I think that's a really interesting way to kind of navigate the idea of reading the landscape from the point of view of the film itself. There are moments like that, the one that I just played, which are kind of more dense abstract sections. There are moments that also work um, with different sources. So obviously I'm working with paper sources, but I'm also working with digital and particularly public domain sources. Although I was working with some collections, um, particularly behind the scenes letters at Kew Gardens. So it was all collections that I could access digitally. Um, so I also, um, in part of the voiceover, there's um, behind the scenes voices uh, from the digitized archive material from the director's correspondence at Kew. Um, it's incoming letters to Q's senior staff, um, so about these kind of orchid histories. Um, and another source which I find quite interesting to use is LibriVox, which is um, public domain recordings of um, public domain literature. Um, so there's a couple of sources from that as well. Um, but the sounds that you just heard in that extract were um, butterfly wings and uh, page flicking. Um, in the next section, uh, the sounds, oh, and, okay, and then the next section that I want to show um, to kind of speak to this use of digital materials um, is using one example of uh, public domain herbarium, uh, which is the Reichenbachia, uh, which was by King of Orchids, Frederick Sander. Um, I think it's another example of how interesting it is that, to, you know, to not use the word multimedia, but to use the word intermedia and, you know, and understand these kind of conditions of mediation. Um, these were imperial editions, chromolithography, by extravagant, opulent, each single volume was dedicated to a royal customer and, you know, now there are these digital facsimiles. Um, so I'm going to play a, sh a short bit of the visuals from that. This is this digital version. Um, I'm quite interested in these ideas of remediation, literally, in the in the way that you know I might here I was sourcing the original text, re-editing it, created this animation, and then rewatched this animation. Uh, here you can also see some of the books that I was using in this section. Uh, I'm just going to pause that. The next section I want to show. Um, I'm just going to explain the sound as well in advance. The sound track here is made from recordings I made in greenhouses um, with. Uh, rare plants, so kind of hothouse recordings, um, and then a kind of imagined plant chorus. Um, and the visuals they are here we go. Uh, so. so, um, as you can see, these, these sort of extended, slightly different sequences. Um, Part of what I'm interested in, um, and you know, which in some ways Ian also thinks about in working with a pamphlet, in working with these alternative models of, of publishing, um, is how we can take previous models, such as the printed herbaria, and how these are recreated to express anxiety at different ages, how we can write environmental anxiety by taking on these forms. Um, so the, the different kind of botanical treaties, manuscript notebooks and paper, complex paper landscapes of trade catalogues and circulation and material artifacts and the links between browsing plants on the page and in the world and these different 
forms of spectatorship and intermedia um, and how those can be politically reinvoked. And you know, some of the inspirations that you know I talked about earlier in the project um, were books such as the Chernobyl Herbarium, um, which is Michael Marder and A. Honda's book, which is for fragment 30 fragments of kind of transspecies herbaria, but written only by damaged plants. Um, or uh, Uriel Ugo's uh, Theatrum Botanicum, which is this multimedia um, in installation of post-colonial herbaria online slides, different images and installations. Um, Matthew Beach's The Herbarium's Shadow. Um, so this kind of reinvention of the herbaria. Oh, and um, Edward Thompson's Red Forest, which is a new version of the 17th century book of trees but photographed only using um, a particular kind of aerochrome originally developed for military surveillance so that the only thing that can be seen is the invisible, invisible infrared film portraits of the exposed landscape of Chernobyl trees. So these types of taking on of earlier printed forms um, to show a new form of self-portraiture via plants. Um, Jacques Boss once argued that depicting an individual tree in a certain kind of French painting is always a kind, an act of self-portraiture. And I'm interested in how these works like Haveria can themselves be self-portraits of humanity in the Anthropocene and also the metabolism of humanity in nature, but also a kind of shared vulnerable damaged status in these assemblages, these very disturbed assemblages. So just to conclude, um, this video book of orchids is a story of the clamshell orchid, one of the earliest recorded imported orchids to unfurl in, in a British nursery, of the ghost orchid prized by Europeans, the once declared extinct lady slipper orchid, which according to legend is guarded by a police officer sleeping by it in a tent when it is in flower, or even a story of the small flowered tongue orchid believed to have been extinct but discovered in lockdown in June 2021 on the 11th floor rooftop of a bank in the city of London. But in fact, of course, it is none of those. It is a story of media. It's a virtual tour and an anatomy of a picture book. It's the anxiety of a herbarium. And it concludes from an orchid's eye view. Um, and here I'm going to quote as the kind of last sentence of this presentation, um, this thing that I was very struck by, which is Anna Spenson's last line of her review of Jim Endersby's book of orchids. Um, and you'll hear from her last sentence how I took inspiration from this, particularly in the more digital theme. Quote, it concludes from an orchid eye view in which we humans have been enlisted as pollinators and orchids have colonized not only our imaginations, but also our homes and offices, while the threat of climate change hangs over plant and human both. I am left with a new awareness of the orchid that bends its pale faces over my desk, watching me as I type. And that's it. Yeah. OK, thank, thanks very much. That's great. Um, Lots of things to think about. Anyway, I, I do want to try and take some questions in. So we do have a question here. I wanted to ask you both in terms of landscape, but also how, as you show poignantly, Amy, with plant time, time of a book and virtual time, how we can how can we politicise these temporalities in relation to ongoing uh, imperialism? I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll just say very briefly something. I'm not sure I've got anything particularly profound to say about this, and I wish I did have something more profound to say about it. And I think probably there is something more profound that I... That, that, that I should be saying. But really, I suppose one of the things I was trying to indicate in, in the poems was the ways in which I was trying to overlay a different sort of time, which is actually unwittingly a kind of a kind of imperial time, I think, on top of a landscape that I was seeing. I was trying, for example, to read um, 
through the architecture that I was seeing in front of me, vernacular architecture, um, uh, a kind of timeline which, which wasn't there. And the reason why it wasn't there was because actually there had been two big, um, I suppose, um, two big changes with it, uh, in the landscape, one of which had been around the Great Hunger and the other of which had been around independence. And I wasn't kind of factoring these in and I was looking for a continuous, a continuous timeline, which actually in retrospect I realised afterwards was a, was, was, a, was a kind of imperial approach, if you like. <laughs> I hesitate to think of myself as an imperialist, and who, who wouldn't? But, it's, uh, but you realise that, that that's what you're trying to do. So it's trying to disentangle or take those, take those things apart so you can see how, the, how those different histories and different timelines can be constructed. And vernacular architecture was just uh, one example for me. Amy, do you want to say anything about this? Yeah, um, I suppose, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I also have a perspective where it's, it's interesting approaching something like this and feeling like when you are trying to make a work which is quite meta-historical and you know, plays with these different practices of archives and time, there is an issue, which is that in itself can draw on this model of, you know, an excavatory model towards history, um, you know, in forms of sampling and, and working with different formats. Um, so I guess I'm particularly interested in how plant life, as well as fossil life and non-human life, by sliding between our different archives can um, throw that linearity into question itself, the kind of post-golden point Anthropocene in which that version of archiving no longer makes sense. So what would it mean to tell the archive from the point of view of a, of a fossil? It, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of a larger part of, the, of what I, I'm interested in, in terms of kind of questioning the traditional ways of telling these timed histories of these correspondences and travels of plants um, and what they might activate against that. In terms of the archive itself, um, I can't remember, something that Ian said reminded me of this, but I, I, it, it reminded me of this idea that sometimes um, critical criticism has been described as a botanical horizontal, like the foliate modes of criticism against the linear archive. And I'm, I'm quite interested in that kind of spatialization of reading as well as a kind of activated way of looking at the archive. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I do realize I do have something slightly more profound to say, which is actually about the different times within prose and within poetry. So in a way, there's a kind of different, there's a different release of information that happens within prose. And that was a reason I chose both of those forms of writing uh, for that particular work, for a kind of, I suppose, I suppose poetry might suggest a sort of instantaneous moment, prose suggests a kind of release of information over time. So I realise I don't have something else to say. Okay, there's a question uh, for you here, uh, Amy, uh, from Mo, which says, um, uh, how do you see, can you see it in front of you, how do you see the future of the herbarium and flower book, or whether these can intervene in imperial structure? I mean, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about it is, you know, obviously it's institutional history, but also it's links to the amateur, to amateur botany and its existence as a, a collective project and something that's created by a phalanx of creators. Um, perhaps in the same way that we've seen um, the idea of, for instance, the lexicon or the glossary take hold in the environmental humanities with projects like um, Living Lexicon for the Environmental Humanities, uh, Lexicon for an Anthropocene Yet Unseen, um, Post-Human Glossary, all of these different projects which are about kind of reworking the histories of lexicons as discursive models of collectivity. I think something like the flower book, the herbarium has this kind of 
counter institutional capacity to it as well because of this exact kind of provocative collectivity to it in its format. Um, so I guess that kind of the way that it reworks vocabularies at these granular levels and it is a good seat, a site for these sort of collective projects. Uh, we have a question here from, um, from John Brannigan and it's about our agency as artists in relation to our subjects and uh, Amy referred to Ian's sense of passivity dropped into the landscape and Amy referenced finishing the film from the orchid's point of view. Okay, I'll say, some, I'll say something about it. Um, well, of, cu of course, I was in a curious position in, in that I, was, uh, I found myself in a, in, a, in a landscape actually relatively immobile, not really able to move about it very much, uh, and, and really in the position of observer. So there was, a kind of, there, was a, there was a kind of occasional element to this poem. It was written on an, on an occasion. It wasn't written for an occasion, but it was written on an occasion, uh, which, which one hopes will not be repeated, really. But in a landscape where I didn't, I didn't know anyone, and I, and I was, uh, as I say, I was an observer, and there was a kind of passivity to it. There's also, of course, I wanted um, to have a sense of, uh, I, I think, a sense of cultural passivity in the sense that I, I wanted to uh, absorb and understand the environment in which I found myself. I think when I came here, because I was brought up in northwest Wales, which is geographically similar, it's a bilingual country, it's all those kind of things seem a little bit similar. I expected um, uh, where I moved to, uh, to, also, to also be similar. Uh, and I think I spent a little while not only with, the, with a kind of imperial timeline in my head, but also with a kind of Welsh Republican timeline in my head somewhere as well, which was saying, well, this is going to be like, uh, like Wales, but better because it's independent. Um, and, I, and, I found it, and I found it was quite different. So there was a sense really of wanting to, and that's why I referred to some extent to, to ethnography really in my, in, my, um, in my talk, that I wanted, I wanted to some extent just to be able to absorb what was going on around me. Now I know that of course I can't be an invisible observer. I mean, I'm, I'm now part of, you're now part of that very landscape that you're trying to describe. So it's not as if you can stand completely back and, and detach for it, from it. Uh, but as far as possible, I suppose, I wanted to be able to, uh, to I wanted to be able to act in, in a way as witness. And of course my um, medical immobility actually, or in some ways play, played, into, played into that, because I couldn't go out and stride over the hills and find things out. But I had to kind of, I had to kind of, kind of uh, watch and look. Uh, Amy, do you want to come in? And I'll, I'll think. There's another bit of the question I want to think about. But you come in. My response is well, I found it really interesting moving between, you know, or having moved between the, the forms of agency you give yourself as a researcher and the forms of agency you give yourself as a maker um, take place quite differently. I suppose a certain amount of filmmaking might seem like it's about discovery but having to do it in lockdown alone made it a lot closer to research materially even though it's a, a different kind of endeavor because it's also to do with material experimentation it can't be entirely direct but directionless um but it but it was uh, a much more limited practice not being able to i suppose a, a more normal approach to myself would have been i would have gone to Hughes archive of wax orchid flowers and I would have started looking at their specimens and I would have somehow accessed something outside of myself um, but to be in my room with my laptop really changed that question of agency in a, in a way that I'm you know not fully haven't fully worked out and isn't you know and um, I found was quite a strange process 
Yeah, I think one of the things that's slightly frustrating about this medium is I now want to go back to the uh, to the questioner and kind of say, well, can you expand on certain aspects of the question? But of course, one can't do this. We're we're, we're left with the question as written. Uh, 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 um, but I think I think that's that notion of a distributed sense of agency uh, is 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 quite interesting. And I think both of us, in a, in a way, within the different media that we were working. We're trying to kind of push ourselves around into kind of different places. We were trying to work through uh, prose, we're trying to work through poetry, we're trying to work with varieties of information, which we have to act sometimes as, as if we're historians, where neither of us, well, actually, Amy, you can probably make more claims to being a historian than I can. But, uh, you know, and so we, and we have to act somehow as kind of cultural commentators and in all sorts, or, or ecologists in all sorts of different ways, I think. And I think that that kind of distributed sense of the self of trying to pull that together within the artwork. And quite often we, I noticed the forms of your films where you were using overlay, you were using, you know, it, it's hard to tell with the timing exactly, uh, whether we were seeing the timing you wanted us to see or whether it was the timing that Zoom was allowing us to see. Uh, but there was, there was also a kind, of, a, a kind of movement through as well. There was movement through as well as a kind of distribution to, through the layers. And that seemed to me as well a, a dissolution of agency somewhere within, within the processes that you were using. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I think we're coming just about to the end of our time. It's now uh, 1.59, uh, so, and we finish at, at, at two o'clock. And, and I hope that the ways in which we've tried to approach um, uh, the questions that the uh, symposium has set will in some way maybe uh, trigger off one or two other kind of, uh, might resonate in some way uh, through conversations that, that take place in the rest of what it promises to be a very interesting, exciting couple of days. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.